0: All right, story, family, how are we doing here in the museum district? Y'all good? All right, hey, really good. I like it. We're fired up over here. We had some great music just now and got everybody's blood pumping a little bit. And I hope all of you are doing great over at the Timber Grove campus as well. Everybody say hi, Timber Grove. Hi, Timber. All right, we love you guys and uh, everything that's going on at Timber Grove. Also, everybody joining us online as part of the Stories Online campus. Thank you for being here today. My name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here at the Story and uh, it's a big day. For a lot of reasons, it's a big day. Um, I hope that you paid attention to the announcement video. I do hope um, that you are able to get caught up on the Maybe God podcast. Listen, I probably put a third of my time into the Maybe God podcast lately, so if you don't know what the Maybe God podcast is, it's like one of our most important and effective ways of achieving our mission and reaching people that have more questions than answers about Jesus and religion and church and the Bible. And so you don't even have to be like a podcast person. I know everybody's like, I don't do podcasts or whatever. <laughs> okay, it's fine. Um, but you can just go to the website and listen on the website, Maybe Godpod.com and, and uh, get caught up on, on all of it. Some really important stuff going on. I got to interview one of my favorite Christian author is a man who really kept me tethered just by a thread to Jesus during my season of Deep Doubt, Philip Yancey. I don't know if anybody's uh, heard of Philip Yancey, but got to interview Philip Yancey this past week. That episode will be coming out soon. So this is not a showy thing. This is not a money maker at all. (laughs) Believe me, we don't ask for money from this podcast. It's part of the church's mission. And so our mission to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus is very much in line with what we do at Maybe God. So we'd love for you all to check that out. It's a big day for other reasons as well, you guys, believe it or not. After several months journeying through the Gospel of Luke together, today is part 22 of 22 in our series called A Physician and the Facts. This has been a journey that we've been on together since uh, December the 4th, Um, and uh, congratulations to all of you that not only came to worship and stayed in touch with your groups, your discipleship groups and things like that, but you've also been reading every day through the book of Luke. Congrats if you made it through. I don't want to ask for a show of hands, because I'm afraid, of how few might be (laughs) raised, okay, but if you made it uh, without missing any parts of it, congratulations, and I'm really proud of you, and this isn't the the only, or the last time we're going to be doing these, you know, lengthy series. I think we'll do another one in the fall based on Luke's uh, sequel, which is the book of Acts, so we'll just kind of keep the party going in the fall. Um, I also want to say another word of congratulations to someone we all care about very much at the story, um, our own Rolando Alviar, who uh, is a huge part of our community, welcomed a a new huge part of his community. Uh, The newest uh, part of the story was born on April the 5th. Uh, His name is Roman, or Roman, if you speak Spanish, and I know that Rolando and Ariana are home now. Mama and baby are healthy. They're probably watching right now. So y'all, just let's thank God for uh, Roman. All right. Okie doke. All right. So this is it. We're going to dig into part uh, 22 of this series um, called Physician and the Facts. And today's story happens after the resurrection. So um, this is really in step. It's the week. Uh, it's it's the it's the day of the resurrection. We are sort of on our first Sunday after Easter, and so it's sort of in step and uh, with where we are in our season here. And it's really a gift to the church that we even have this story. In uh, uh, the Gospel of Luke, is the only place to find this story. In other words, if it wasn't for Luke, we wouldn't have this story, which I think is going to sort of stand as a reminder. Of why we have four different gospels. And if that's ever been a problem for you, or you've just been tripped up on the fact that Christians need four different takes on one guy's life to make sense of it, like if that's been a stumbling block for you, I understand. Like, why don't we just have one book that gets it all right instead of four that kind of put things in different order sometimes and some people say some things and others say other things? I understand that confusion. But what I want you to see and what you will see today if you're, if you're hanging in there with me is that each uh, writer of each of the four Gospels has it, their own priorities, their own, I hate to use the word agenda, but everybody has an agenda. It's just your priorities and what you want to spotlight, what you want to feature. And you can tell a lot about each of the four biographers by what they chose to include and feature and what they chose to leave out. All right? So, for example, you know, you've got Matthew who clearly wanted to present Jesus as a Jewish, the Jewish Messiah. So in Matthew, if you read Matthew, he reads different than Mark, Luke, and John because he's quoting Old Testament Scripture that point to Jesus more than all other three Gospels combined. When you read Mark, you'll see that Mark is really a no-frills author, Mark doesn't give us a lot of, like, pretty language or descriptors. Mark's favorite words are suddenly and immediately. It's just a blow-by-blow, just the facts, and that's why it's the shortest of the four Gospels by far. John's Gospel, a very different account than the other three. John wanted, before he died on basically his deathbed, he wanted to leave the world an account of the spiritual gospel uh, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection through the lens of, like, heaven. It's the angel's version of uh, what Jesus' incarnation meant for all of us. And so when the other gospel writers are like, Jesus was born in Bethlehem to a woman named Mary and to a stepdad named Joseph, like, John comes along and says, let me tell you where it really all began. And he says in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, you know, he's like, that's the beginning, that's the birth story in John's gospel. It's a very different take. Well, what do we see when we look at Luke? What have we seen since December as we've looked at Luke? What Luke brings to the surface is God's heart for the downtrodden, for the depressed for the poor, the oppressed. He, he wants to make sure that Jesus's heart is on display, and, and he wants the world to know that Jesus's heart bleeds for us when we hurt, that Jesus seeks out those who are lost, those on the outside looking in. So that's why Luke is the one and the only one who gives us a story like the Good Samaritan, only in Luke. The prodigal son, only in Luke. These stories all sort of, they, they present the heart of God in a way that is, um, well, I'll just say it. Luke has been called like the social justice gospel in a way. Like like Luke's gospel reads like Jesus is, uh, is, is out there meeting people where they are, no matter who they are, especially if they're down and out, if they're oppressed or foreigners or, or women and children are, are given a lot of um, a lot of play in, in Luke's gospel as well, where they aren't given as much in other, the other three gospels, all right? So the story we're going to look at today to round out the series is in step with those others that I mentioned earlier, where Luke is telling us this thing that no other gospel writer told us because there's something about Jesus in this story that Luke want, wants to make sure we all know, that maybe we'll miss if not for Luke. Praise God that, that Luke sat down and, and went to painstaking lengths to preserve these stories, right? Like the the gospel writer, John says, Jesus did and said so many things. He said, this this is the last verse. I just told you the first verse of John. This is the last verse of John. He said, Jesus did many other things as well. If any one of them, uh, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. So Jesus said and did all kinds of things. We don't know all the things Jesus said and did. We only know enough that's sufficient for our salvation. We'll hear the rest in heaven one day, I hope. But Luke preserved this story which is such a beautiful story, and I'm so glad we get to spend a few minutes looking at it today. So it comes from Luke 24, verses 13 to 27. Luke 24, 13 to 27, it's in your Bibles. It's going to be on your study guides as well, Uh, those eight and a half by 11 sheets you were given. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? And they said still, their faces downcast. So that tells you the frame of mind that they're in. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? So what happened to Jesus was a citywide scandal. And he's asking Jesus, don't you, are you the only one who doesn't know? Which is pretty funny. If you think about it in context, Jesus, of course, it, it happened to him, right? Like if anybody knew it was him, but Jesus is incognito at this point. What things, Jesus ironically asked, what things About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But but, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. This is the end. They're reaching the end of the third day, which means all hope is lost. In the Jewish frame of mind, someone could be resuscitated within three days, but after that, all hope was lost. That's how they thought about it. In addition, some of our women amazed us. Uh, they went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So when they say these women amazed us, they're not buying it. It's not that they buy it. They, they don't, they're not buying into the resurrection, okay? They just said something weird happened, but they still walked away. That's what's happening. They didn't see Jesus, so who knows? And then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Okay, that last part. Um, I know the Bible says don't envy, it's a sin. But I find myself envious of these two disciples on the road hearing what must have been the best sermon of all time. Jesus explaining one at a time the verses in the Old Testament that refer to him. Jesus. Now, Luke doesn't give us that sermon. I wish he did, but but I'm assuming we get to hear it one day in heaven, I hope, because it must have been amazing. But let's talk about these two people. Who were they? And what, what were they doing in this passage? So if you're new to Scripture, hopefully this will help. Two of them, it says. So whenever you see something vague like that in a story, look at the story above it to find out who them is, right? So, so two of them in the story above it, Luke had referred to the, the group of disciples who followed Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, most of them hoping that Jesus was leading an army of sorts into Jerusalem to take over, to drive out the powers that were, so that he could establish his throne in Jerusalem once and for all. That's what they thought they'd signed up for. And these two apparently were part of that group. Now we don't know much about them other than that. We know one of their names. Cleopas was one of their names, a male name. The other one, we don't have their name. Could be another dude. Could be Cleopas's brother, son, father, who knows? Could be Cleopas's wife because the the way the story is written doesn't imply that both were men or maybe one man one woman one of them was a man that's what we know my best theory is that it was his wife because we're going to see later they shared a home together but we don't we just don't know that part whatever that, that the case is they lived in a place called Emmaus which was 7 miles from Jerusalem a small village almost unmentioned entirely in history there's one story that's not biblical. It happened 150 years before Jesus. It's in the Maccabean era that takes place in Emmaus. But other than that, it's almost unheard of. But it's seven miles from Jerusalem. We have a sister church that we love and respect here in Houston. It's not far from here called Seven Mile Road. If you ever heard the name of that church and wondered why they call it that, this is why. Okay, so it's a seven-mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and everything changed along that road. So this is all happening on Easter Sunday, the same day that Jesus rose, but it's the end of the day. And these two people are walking along this road, processing, unpacking whatever pop psychology word you're going to put on it, but they have just endured maybe the most traumatic experience of their lives. They'd never seen anything like what happened over the past few days. Just seven days before this, their their guy, the most honest, loving Godly man they had ever known, the man they were willing to give their lives for, the man they had followed from from their homes into Jerusalem at their own risk. This man had been wrongly accused, falsely imprisoned, unjustly condemned, beaten to a pulp, and then executed like some criminal or some just common thug from the streets that threatened the state or something. Like, he was treated like the worst of us, even though he was the very best of us. And they were still trying to make sense of what they'd seen. But what really mattered to them at this point was that this guy they'd followed had been slaughtered. They probably watched it all happen. They'd probably borne witness to it, maybe from a distance. The Bible seems to indicate John was the only of the 12 disciples that came close to the cross. But there were others, it said, that were watching from a distance. Maybe that was these two, Cleopas and his wife or companions whoever was with him. Whatever the case, how could they not have PTSD at this point? So they're talking about it on the way home, still trying to figure out what had happened and what to do with all that they had experienced, the horror of it. And then this stranger walked up to them and struck up a conversation, which can be uncomfortable. I don't know if you're the kind of person that strikes up conversations with strangers or if you buy into the whole stranger danger uh, myth, okay, Um, I just want to make clear, if you are a child and your parents have told you not to talk to strangers, listen to them, not me, okay? What I'm about to tell you might contradict that a little bit. Um, It's not always a good idea to talk to strangers. However, I have found it to be uh, a way that God works. And not just in my own life, but throughout the Bible, I see one example after another of people striking up conversations with total strangers or vice versa, and, and God shows up in the midst of a conversation you strike up with a stranger. I talk to everyone. Truly, I always have. It's not, it didn't just start when I became a Christian. I've always just had that about me. I don't know if I'm a small town or whatever. I'm just I always, I, Geo, it drives Geo crazy sometimes, because I will talk to our server at the table, and not just like, what what should I eat here? I'm like, so where are you from? Like, <laughs> we're on a date, my wife and I, and she, I'm like, I'm asking all these questions to this server, but I'm genuinely interested in people. It's just something God gave me, right? And, uh, and, and check out like cashiers at HEB, like we become friends, and homeless dudes outside of CVS, I, generally, if the opportunity presents itself, I will stop and just at least spend some time getting to know someone. Generally, not always, but I try to make it a habit. And I have learned some of the most important thi- things about myself and people and God through those kinds of random, strange, wild encounters. I've also gotten myself in some precarious situations, if I'm honest. <laughs> I used to have this rule, where um, if I was driving alone and not with my wife, uh, and my kids weren't born at that time, but I, I had this rule um, where if I was driving through East Texas where I used to live and, and along the highways and, and uh, freeways of, of East Texas, any time I came across a hitchhiker, I stopped to get him, Anytime. time. And I probably transported uh, two or three dozen hitchhikers between age uh, 18 to 25, when I was 18 to 25, all right? Not the hitchhikers. I didn't care what age they were. But when I was 18 to 25, I picked up all these hitchhikers and um, got to know them. And sometimes it was good, sometimes it wasn't. Um, But it was always eye-opening. It always made me grow as a person. I decided to stop this one time when I unwittingly aided and abetted an elderly gentleman in his escape from his nursing home, (laughs) which (laughs) (laughs) Uh, after driving him three hours from Dallas to Texarkana and dropping him off at a 7-Eleven, I went home and turned on the local news, and there he was, silver alert, they said. He was a sweet old man. But apparently, according to the news, he suffered from Alzheimer's, which explained a lot of our conversations, <laughs> actually. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, I hung it up after that, decided it's probably uh, out, outside of my, above my pay grade, right? But I still think the principle remains true, that it is a biblical, I won't say mandate, because I don't want y'all to find yourselves in dangerous situations because some Pastor Eric said. It's a biblical principle that God breaks through when we open up to strangers. Okay? Take that as you will. Don't get mugged on my account. But (laughs) just keep in mind that these kinds of random encounters and conversations may may not be so random, and they, they might actually have something to show us. And that seems to be the case throughout scriptures, right? Abraham and Sarah Entertained angels unawares, is the famous phrase. When they welcome strangers and uh, didn't just talk to them, but, but open their home to them, that's pretty radical hospitality. And uh, it's just one of many, many other examples from Scripture that I could point out uh, that that seem to indicate the same. okay? So uh, Jesus as well, obviously seemed to love talking to strangers half the amazing things that happened throughout his three years of ministry on the earth happened when he just struck up conversations with people like Zacchaeus or the woman at the well or you name the person, right? Okay, so we kind of get that idea and it shows up again in this story. On the Emmaus Road, I love Jesus' approach. He doesn't just come and like reveal himself to these disciples who, by the way, are abandoning him. I mean, think of it in context. They're walking away. They are done. And he doesn't come to them heavy-handed, holier than thou from on high, like, like to condemn them. He comes asking questions, questions he already knows the answers to. What are you guys talking about? And they're like, things, things that happened. And he's like, "What things?" And then they say the part, well, "Are you the only one who doesn't know?" You know, whatever. And 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 so it's it's a it's a brilliant tactic. Jesus of anybody, Jesus is going to know what things happened to Jesus of Nazareth, because he's him, and they happened to to him, right? But the whole point of this interaction was just to get the people talking. Sometimes I think that's what prayer is. It's as simple as God just wanting to get us talking even if we don't say all the right things. He just wants us to talk to him. And so he'll prompt us with questions, maybe questions of your conscience or questions of your mind, and let that be the start of a prayer, a conversation with God. You don't have to say all the right stuff, as evidenced by these two on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus' gentle, loving kindness with them, even as they don't get everything right, even as they're walking away from him with their faces downcast, he still comes and asks questions, and he listens to them. And what they say in response to his questions is mostly true, like two-thirds true. I was trying to analyze, of all the things they said in that big paragraph of Scripture we just read, how much of it was true? How much of it did they get right versus wrong? So I, the first two things, they said, I think they said sort of three big categories of things. First, they said that they were talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and the people. That statement, on its own, 100% true. They were right about that. The definition of a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God, to the people of God. And they speak the truth, even to the powers that be. Jesus did all those things. So by definition, he was a prophet. He wasn't only a prophet, but he was a prophet. And so, you know, bingo, A plus on the first thing that they said. Totally true. The second thing that they said was that the chief priests and our rulers handed Jesus over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Also true. 100% true. That's exactly what happened. The Jewish leaders used the Roman machine to have Jesus nailed to a cross. That's what they wanted. That was their end game, and they achieved it. So that's totally true. So they were right. Two for two. But then they kept talking. And the third thing they said about Jesus is sort of a longer section, but, but it sort of summed up in this when they said, but we had hoped. So that is an indictment of sorts on them. But, first of all, but, he was all these great things, but he's not all that, right? But we had hoped, but we don't hope anymore. So, so you have to kind of read closely to see where their hearts are at now, but this is where they're at. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He said he would, and then he didn't. That's the implication. And on this point, uh, they were wrong. Well, they were right in the sense they had hoped those things, but they were wrong in the sense that Jesus had somehow failed to do what he came to do. It's not that he failed to do what he came to do. It's that they misunderstood him. And it was no mystery. If they had just listened to Jesus in his own words, they would have been ready for what he did and how he did it. But they were hearing him through a filter, I think, And so their idea of who he should be did not align with who he was and who he is. Which, by the way, friends, is a very common occurrence for all of us at multiple points along your journey. Your idea of Jesus and who he is, who you've heard that he is, who you hope that he is, who he should be in your mind, will come up against something you find in Scripture, and you'll have to make a choice about what to do when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations. And these two chose to walk away. Jesus didn't meet their expectations, and, and, and they walked away. Now, this is, as I said, pretty common, all right? I've talked about my—I've my, ta- I've, I've called it my atheist phase. I'm not real sure that's the most accurate description of it. Age 20 to 33, I renounced biblical faith in the God of the Bible in, in his fullness, and I sort of developed this alternative view of Jesus that is very common in, uh, like, progressive circles, progressive Christian circles, where, you know, you've sort of boiled Jesus down to a, a social justice warrior on steroids, kind of, like someone who who came to be a social revolutionary to, to help the poor and to help the oppressed have better lives here and now. And you know what? Like, that statement that I just said on its own, it's true. It's not that it was a lie. Jesus did come to change the social order, at least as far as his church is concerned. He came to bring about relief to the poor, freedom to the captives, and, and, and you know, relief to the oppressed. Is what, like He came to do all those things here and now. And We should be about those things here and now. We're not just waiting for heaven for things to be made right. We should be making some things right here and now. But if he's only that, then we've only got a partial vision of who he is and if you hear me say nothing else today, hear this. A partial vision of Jesus can be more dangerous than no vision at all of Jesus. Partial knowledge of Jesus has been the justification for all manner of sins throughout history. Partial awareness or partial submission unto Jesus and who he is rather than full knowledge or awareness of Jesus is what led people to hold Bibles and slaves at the same time. Partial knowledge of who Jesus is and what he said, what he did, what he's all about. It was used in Spanish inquisitions. It's used to justify racism, sexism, all kinds of things. That's where partial knowledge about Jesus will Get you. And when I was only partially, I won't say knowledgeable because I knew the whole thing, I just didn't accept the whole thing about Jesus. When I was just about Jesus, the man, Jesus, the glorified Che Guevara, Jesus, like the revolutionary, what I lost was some kind of spiritual accountability that called me out on my sins. The only sins I wanted to talk about was, you know, big oil and people ruining the environment, capitalists and all that stuff. Like That's what I looked at as sin, and there's sin in that way for sure, but I didn't want to think about my own sin. That's where a partial understanding of Jesus will get you. Be very careful. Be very careful with your partial understandings of Jesus. These two disciples on the Emmaus Road had only a partial understanding of the Messiah. They were right about him being a prophet, Right about him being unjustly crucified, but they were wrong in assuming that he had failed because their assumption came from their rejection of the idea altogether that the Messiah could ever die, that the Redeemer of Israel would die on a cross, right? That that their Savior would suffer. I did not compute with them, even though if they had just read the Scriptures or if they had just heard Jesus' own words, they would have known. The only way to save your life is lose it. If you want to know Jesus, you take up your cross and follow him. Things like that. Jesus told them in no uncertain terms that he would die and come back. And still they didn't want to buy it because it's the power of self-delusion and the partial understanding of Jesus many of us have. When they used the words about Jesus like, we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel, like that is verbatim the way the Old Testament described Moses. They wanted another Moses. Like, it was so clear in their minds, I can see it. They looked at Moses as the hero of the old days, right? Moses stared down Pharaoh and delivered Israel from Egypt. And now Jesus has come to stare down Caesar and deliver Israel from Rome. But they missed the part. They missed the part, the most important part, about Jesus and his mission. And he didn't just come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer us and our sins. He came to conquer evil and death, right? Much greater foes than Rome, but they could only see what they wanted to see. So the question for all of us is, what aspects of who Jesus is have you been ignoring because it's not in line with who you wish Jesus was or who you wanted him to be? Let's keep reading as we finish out this story from um, the Emmaus Road. Verse 28 starts this way. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly. So this is an old preacher trick. Um you give someone an opportunity to pick up the check before you pick it up. You give someone an opportunity, like, if there's any aspiring preachers in the room, talk to me after it. I'll show you how it's done, okay? So he's like, I'm just going to keep going now. Like, and they're like, no, stay, okay. <laughs> like, that's, anyway, it's, uh, he's giving them an opportunity to be hospitable is what he's doing, okay? So uh, they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So we went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon, that's Simon Peter, and then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So, um, these, over the years, scholars have debated why they were kept from seeing him and recognizing the man that they knew so well. And some scholars are like, well, he was uh, beaten up so badly that he was unrecognizable. I don't think so. I mean, I think he was beaten up so bad and, and maybe unrecognizable for that reason, but I don't think that's, that's not what Luke tells us. Others have said maybe he's covered his face. That's not the point. Luke told us very clearly in the prior reading that they were kept from recognizing him. What's going on there? Like, was God playing games with them, Like cat and mouse games of some sort? I, I don't think that's it. I think this is another example of how God is willing to let us have our way. He's willing to let you see what you want to see most. And if what you want to see most is only part of Jesus... He's not going to force himself upon you. He will let you have what you want, but just be very careful what you want. Be careful with what you seek, careful with what you ask for, because God's promise is eventually in some way that you might not expect, you will get what you want the most, okay? Verses 30 and 31 are the turning point here, and I want us to think about why. It says, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. So, what what opened their eyes was Jesus taking the bread, breaking it, and sharing. I've, I've always sort of assumed that that's because three days before this, or three or four days before this, depending how you look at it, the the Passover meal, the Last Supper, right, with with Jesus doing this very thing. Like maybe they just remembered at that point. And that's why their eyes were open. Although I don't think that tells the whole story. To really understand why they could see him at this point in the story, you have to know he was, this was a hospitality culture, and Jesus was the guest. Jesus was the outsider, and so he would not have been the one, typically, to serve the meal. I mean, that would have been the job of the head of household. Always, a thousand years of custom and tradition, would have said that probably Cleopas as head of household, should have been the one at the head of the table taking the bread, thanking God for the bread, breaking the bread, sharing the bread, as the the man of the house or the head of household was supposed to do. And so when Jesus stepped in that role, I guess it must have been some kind of a surprise or a shock to the other two at first. But once the surprise and shock wore off, they realized Jesus had taken his rightful place, as head of their household. And something clicked in that moment that allowed them to see Jesus for who he was. It's almost until you allow Jesus to take his rightful place in your life, in your home, or your heart. You're kept from seeing him for who he really is. But welcoming him as the Lord of your life, the head of your household, your Redeemer, your Savior. That's when your eyes are open to who you are. And I've experienced that in such a personal way, I'm not even sure I can put words to it. I just know that when he sits in his rightful place in your life, there's new understanding, there's awareness, humility before him, and you really get what he came to do. The misunderstanding they were suffering with before was that Jesus had come to conquer Rome and set up his throne in Jerusalem, and they were missing it, that Jesus really came to conquer sin and set up his throne in their home. Has Jesus set up his throne in your home? Is he the Lord of your life and maybe your family's life together? Heads of household in the room right now, I don't know, not fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, whoever, whatever kind of household you've got, whether it's, you know, 2.5 kids in a picket fence or whether it's you and your roommate, like, who sits on the throne of your home? When you pray, do you acknowledge him as the Lord of your house? And, and do you submit your whole household, including yourself, to his lordship? And do the people sort of under your influence in that home know that you're under his because that's his rightful place. That's when your eyes and those uh, who you live with will be open to see Jesus for who he really is in his fullness. And I, I just want to acknowledge every one of us Myself included, yourself included, we're all going to come to that fork in the road where we have these moments of tension where what we thought Jesus was isn't who he is because scripture is showing us something else. And in those moments, I just want us to see we have three choices. And the first choice is to do what the two disciples had done, and they just tucked tail and ran away. They left Jesus and went home. You can walk away from Jesus, that's fine. The second choice is what I did between age 20 and 33, where I just recreated Jesus in my own image and pretended as though I, I knew him, talked as though I knew him, and misled everyone who heard me talk about Jesus because I only presented a partial understanding of who he was, and who he is. The third option, the one I pray that all of us will choose is when we come to that fork in the road is to trust Jesus And let him show us who he really is and to surrender ourselves to the lordship that he provides. The Bible says Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. And this is a great sort of way to measure how we're doing with understanding Jesus in his fullness. Because I see Christians really struggling with erring in one direction or the other. And churches struggle with this, too. I can tell you, like, when I visit churches, I know from the first five minutes whether this is a church that errs on the side of truth or that errs on the side of grace. I can probably tell you by looking at their website, I have to go. But you go to some churches, and you hear so much about how much God hates sin and, and how how God is coming, Jesus is coming back to judge everyone on his righteous throne and, and, and how, you know, most people are going to go to hell and all this, all, all this stuff. And, and, and it's not that that stuff isn't necessarily true. It's just that without an acknowledgment of Jesus also being full of grace and, and the fact that he loves sinners as much as he hates sin, then we miss seeing Jesus in his fullness, right? And I've also been a part of churches where all the judgment and, and, and wrath and all that stuff is just, we don't talk about that here. We'll leave that to other people. We just want you to know God loves you, and he accepts you. He affirms you. He, I saw one church say, he adores you. That's a reach. I'm not sure God adores me or you. Or, that's, adore is worship, same synonym, right? So be careful. But the idea there is that you don't really have to worry. There's no urgency to repent. Like, God's cool with you the way that you are. Just keep doing what you're doing and come to church when you can. You know, it's like that stuff is every bit as hateful and dangerous as the stuff people complain about at these judgy churches, right? Like, it's just hateful in a different way. To follow Jesus earnestly is to see him being full of both grace and full of truth. Not full of grace and a little truth or full of truth and a little grace full of grace and truth, love and wrath. He is gentle and judgmental. He is merciful and mighty. The point is this, and I close with this. If Jesus doesn't meet your expectations, it's not Jesus who needs an adjustment. Let's pray. God, thank you for always running us down and meeting us where we are, even when we walk away from you in despair with our faces downcast, you come and find us, you strike up a conversation, you wait for us to talk to you, and um, you're ultimately uh, kind and patient with us, Lord. But we also want to see you for who you are in your fullness, Lord, and we also know you're calling us uh, to holiness. You're calling us to repent of our sin and and follow you toward uh perfection and and, uh, the life you really called us to live, Lord, even if we fall short, we're we're aspiring toward it. Lord, uh, help us, help us, whether we need to be called out uh, for um, being too judgmental or called out for being a little soft, Lord, unsettle us. shake us up. And if anyone here has just been waiting on the fringes of faith and not really sure about you, I pray that you would cut out the middleman, take me and even the institutional church out of the picture, Lord, and just talk one-on-one with them right now. Speak to their hearts. May they be open to you, to your guiding. Lord, may all the distractions fade away and may something change today that changes their lives forever. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.